We are going on tour. The Glamorous Trash Podcast and my book tour have collabed and we're coming to a city near you. Click the link in the show notes to to get all of the deets. We're coming to New York City. On June 4th, we are kicking off an event with Jon Stewart. No big deal. That's our very first show in New York City. Then we're coming to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Chicago, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles. So get your tickets now. We are doing three different events because, you know, I'm always doing the most. That's just on brand, right? First, there's a glamorous trash party. It's the podcast meets the book tour meets Coachella, a live show featuring podcast segments, book segments, a very special guest. And of course, there's a runway walk at the end for people to show off their fits because the dress code to every event is obviously glamorous trash. We are also doing a cookie country club. It's the anti-country club country club. And it's very dreamy. You get like a bunch of products. There's little events. And it's a more intimate event where you meet other cookies and listen to a book chat with what me and another special guest. And then the final event, the Behind the Bangs Writing Workshop. I finally did it, put it together, put together this workshop because I wrote this book in many ways for younger me. And younger me would not have gotten off her couch unless there was also a workshop being taught. I wanted the gyms. I wanted I wanted the knowledge. I wanted the education. That's what I would have wanted. So I've decided I'm doing it. And in the workshop is going to be the six writing gyms that took me forever to learn. 15 years. In my 15-year career as a TV writer and author and blah, 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 all the other things I've written, there are six things that I always use, and all of those are in this workshop. So if you have an interest in writing, sign up. All the ticket links are live today. Click the show notes. Click my Instagram. We are coming to a city near you, and there's going to be some meet and greets. I'll sign some copies of books. We'll give out more books, and I have uh, some pieces of merch that I'm taking on the road, and I'm going to give them out at the shows. Welcome to Glamorous Trash. On this podcast, we recap and book club celebrity memoirs, pontificate about pop culture, and sometimes we cry. If you have ever referenced Mariah Carey in therapy, then this is probably the podcast for you. I'm your host, Chelsea Devantes. I'm a TV writer, comedian, and filmmaker, and sometimes I'm in stuff too. And this is a Glamorous Trash Talk episode. Today, we are talking about money and why people don't seem to want ours. And by ours, I mean women. Women have shown what type of films and music we want time and time again. Yet every time it is proven to these companies, they treat it like it's a fluke. Take for instance, this summer, we saw record-breaking numbers with the movie Barbie, an undeniable project by women for women. But I mean, sure, how could they have seen this coming? Oh, I don't know, with the success of Girls Trip five years earlier in 2017. But you know, Girls Trip came out of nowhere. Wrong. What about Bridesmaids six years earlier in 2011 and Pitch Perfect the year after? Mean Girls in 2004, Bring It On in 2000, First Wives Club 1996, Clueless 1995, Sister Act 1992, and of course 9 to 5 in 1980. 
Okay, I just listed a lot of movies. And if you notice, the chunks get larger and larger. Like in the 1990s, they're doing one a year. And then they're like, how about every five years? Like every five years, one comes out. They're like, oh, it's a hit. And then five years later, they can bring us another one. Now, I'm specifically calling out female ensemble blockbuster comedies right now. I'm close to putting like Waiting to Exhale or or Steel Magnolias on there, but they're more drama. So that is to say, I just listed 10 female ensemble comedies in 40 years. 40 years, you guys. Now, let's just add 20 more. I didn't name them. I can't think of them. Maybe you can. Let's add 20 more. That would mean 30 blockbuster female-led comedies in 40 years, not even a movie a year. To put that in perspective, look at male-led comedies. In the last 10 years, Deadpool, Deadpool 2, 21 Jump Street, 22 Jump Street, The Nice Guys, The Other Guys, Good Boys, Hangover 1, 2, and 3, Neighbors 1, 2, and 3, Men in Black 1, 2, and 3. Or you know what? Let's go simpler. There are 12 Spider-Man films. There are 13 Batmans. Kevin James has starred in 27 comedies. Between Spider-Man, Batman, and Kevin James, they have the entire canon of female blockbuster comedies beat. And some of those mall cops were not that funny. Now here's the kicker. Women hold 80% of consumer buying power. So 80% of the money in the economy. Yes, that is a fact. You guys, we hold 80% of the purchasing power. So I'm here to ask, what the fuck? (laughs) That's this episode. The people at the top, know the markets are female and they've given us things like wellness and beauty and lip glosses. But what about art? Okay. What about the art we want? Why won't they give it to us? Will this summer of Taylor and Beyonce and Barbie change anything? Let's bring on our guest. And just to let you know, there was a tiny little audio thing with her mic at a couple of points in the podcast. We weren't able to fix it, but I, the conversation still stands, but just know there'll be like a a little clip of a word every now and then. Our guest today is very special. She is my best friend, Ashley Nicole Black. Hi, Ashley. Hi. Okay, I could tell everyone your unreal TV writing credits and Emmys, but we're in a strike. So instead, I'll list, I would say, equally important credits. You went to Taylor Swift and Beyonce's concerts this summer. Yes, this within a month of each other. <laughs> it truly was like watching someone's personality change, like, cause we've, we love concerts, but like, we're usually too busy to, so to have yes. you texting me, like I'm going to this concert, this outfit, this concert, this outfit. I was like, Whoa, it's a new dawn it happens when I don't have work to do. I'll just go watch another woman work. <laughs> I gotta get my fix somehow. That's right. Okay. So this episode was actually inspired by you uh, going to these concerts and talking to me about it. And then someone in the Patreon chat lounge was like, will you talk about how, you know, there were, there were all these headlines of like, did Taylor Swift bring back the economy? Did Beyonce and Taylor Swift's tours single-handedly bring back hotels this summer? And just sort of like the financial relationship between like, if you make good art for women, we actually spend more of the money. And The little thing I want to say is that like back in 2009, which listen, this has been going on forever, but 2009, 14 years ago, there were articles like women spend all the money. What are we doing wrong? And then Dell computer would make like pink laptops for women being like, well, we want some of the money and they would make it pink and and then it would fail. And they'd be like, guess women don't buy stuff. Never mind. Um, So why do you think this keeps happening? We know that they've known this since television began because that's why there was daytime television because yes. they knew that women are going to choose what brand of soap to buy. Women buy everything for the children. A lot of women buy even their husband's clothes. So anything, cars, 
anything, the, they knew women were making these choices and advertising reflects that. But for some reason, entertainment has chosen not to. So even like if that study came out in 2009, they've known since the 1950s. They, it's just a choice that they're making. You're exactly right. And it, it's such a disconcerting choice because we're told we live in a capitalist society. I mean, I, we're told we do. We live in a capitalist <laughs> society. Like even the worst person on earth likes money. Why will you not give us more of the art we want and will clearly pay for? And, and like, it's like, why don't you want our money? Why won't you give us our art? Because every time they do, it is a massive success. And so I want to talk about movies and then we'll go into Taylor and Beyonce. Oh, well, let me just contextualize really quick. So there's a guy at UCLA. His name is Dr. Hunt, I think. I'm like obsessed with him. I got to meet him in real life and he is hot. First of all, okay. He's like a hot professor. I fangirled over him like he was McDreamy or something. I think I scared him away. But every year at UCLA, they do this report of TV and movies and the um, gender, racial, ethnic breakdown of who works on it. So in front of and behind the camera and what the cast is. And what they have found literally every single year is that the closer the makeup of the people working on a production is to the makeup of America. So that would be like 50% female, 13% black, whatever the closest is to real life, the more money it makes. And they have found this every year for many, many years. And here's the craziest part. Guess who funds the study? The studios. No. They pay for the study. The study tells them, here's how to make money. And then they just simply do not do it. I was like, I always knew about this study, but I was so shocked when I found out that they actually funded it. That is the most shocking part. That That's so nuts. So research, like funding research, and this is not just in entertainment in general, is like a way to not have to change. Because like someone will bring up a problem and they go, oh, we'll do a study about it. We'll fund a study about it. And then when people go, well, hey, you have this problem. They're like, we funded a study and that's seen as progress. But a lot of times you're just studying shit that like any five-year-old black kid could have told you was happening. Like we all know it's happening. We didn't need a study, but doing a study is a way to kind of like kick the can down the road. Yeah, I think that's so smart. I feel like a Hollywood overall falls into this problem of being (laughs) so scared about doing the wrong thing or wanting to do the right thing, but not knowing how to do that, that they then enact something worse. (laughs) So they'll be (laughs) like, oh, um, you know, we should have lady directors. Yes. And then they'll go to find them and just like find like the worst ones and then, and then throw them in. And then they'll be like, wait, they suck. Women are bad. And it's like, oh, you, you, the person making the decision have so many biases. You didn't even know how to find what actually makes a good female director. Whereas like you somehow can do it with men. And even when you fuck up with men, there's enough of them that your statistic is still high enough that men do well. Whereas like if you only chose one woman, you better be good at knowing who's good at actually the job. Well, it's also like they want to be able to say they did it, but they don't want to actually do it. And the way I know this, so I'm an actor and a writer. The number of times people have asked me if I want to direct or like there's a direct, do you want to join this directing program? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, there are hundreds of women There's a dozen in my phone I can give you right now who are dying to direct, who have directed short films, who went to school for directing, 
who are directing commercials or late night segments or whatever, who are definitely a better choice to go into this program or direct a TV show or movie. You're asking me because I'm already here and you've already accepted me and you're like, you decided I'm quote unquote, one of the good ones. So you'd rather one of the few people who you're going to let in the door who doesn't know how to do the job than to actually go out and search and find the people who know how to do the job and take the same risk on them that you take on any man who's directing for the first time. You're taking a huge risk. It's a risk, yeah, yeah. but they're unwilling to take that. You're a complete stranger and I'm going to take a risk on you when it comes to women. Yeah, which is also, <clears throat> as a director, devastating <laughs> to hear. No, no, absolutely. And I, I've seen this happen too. And I and, and I've seen it happen to you because we work together frequently. Um, yeah. I've also, I also have seen with actors and like, we won't name names, but like I've seen, I've seen certain roles go out where like they decided, quote unquote, the role has to be a certain ethnicity or has to be just ambiguously diverse, meaning just anyone. And you're like, okay, it doesn't seem, you know, character comes from specificity, but whatever. And then people get auditions who've never acted before in their lives yes. because when they watch all these tapes, they're just like, uh, no one's good. And you're like, I'm sorry, thousands of people were not good to the point that you have now sent an audition video to my accountant. Literally. Like I have girlfriends. Literally, you guys, we're not joking. Reached out to me and been like, I got my first audition <laughs> and it'll be, and it's always because it's not just gender, it's also plus size. So a character is written plus size, one out of every 10 million characters. And then they're just literally walking up to fat women in the street being like, do you want to act? And it's like, hey, how about we go to a comedy club, an acting class, find people who are actually acting because like I have had friends who have gotten auditions like that that I didn't get. And I'm a professional actor. It's it's so it's so wild. And I've watched very smart, talented people uh, uh, be unable to gauge talent when it's coming from someone who is not their own gender, racial and class makeup, like money <laughs> in it as well. Yeah. And like, I think funny in particular is cultural. And so some people think like their version of funny is the only thing that's funny. So like you and I coming out of late night, a lot of white men are like making star Wars references is funny. Um, it's like specific cultural things. And then someone of a different culture will come in and they're actually fucking hysterical. But instead of a reference to star Wars, it's a reference to living single. And they're just like, it's not funny. And it's like, it is funny. And PS is someone who used to teach even if, if something is not funny to me, I can tell if the structure of it works. And I'm like, this is a joke that works, even if I don't know what that word is that you said yeah. in the middle of it that's, like, culturally specific. So these people who, like, consider themselves to be geniuses, but they can't recognize talent in a woman or a person of color or whatever, you're not a genius. Because you should be able to tell if the structure works or if the acting is working, if they're connecting as an actor, regardless of if the specifics are like culturally different from what you're used to. And that's where like ego gets into it. We're like ego yeah. clouds, all actual brain thought. I distinctly remember a time where you pitched a sketch about Olivia Pope oh, yeah. and you were told um, no one will get what this is. Does anyone even watch this show? Yes. And at, the and at time, that particular time, Scandal was the number three show on network television. 
Yeah. But because that singular person was watching, I don't know, old Godfather movies on loop and, and never <laughs> turned on the television to even see a commercial go by. <laughs> they were like, you're not, that's not funny. It can't, it can't be in the show. Yeah. And, and in that case, again, because scandal was so popular, everyone else in the room was like, what are you talking about? But then as you say, that's where that ego comes in where it's like, everyone must be wrong. And I must be the only one who's right. As opposed to if you think something is not cool, and like 15 people are like, either it's cool or it's not for me, but I at least know what it is. You should have a moment of like, oh, I guess I just didn't know about that thing. Yes, yes. And this is where data comes in. So let me bring us back to a statistic. I want to go through movies first, and then I want to talk specifically about Taylor Swift and Beyonce. So <laughs> I don't know why this is making me laugh. I think because it hurts so much. So women <laughs> control 80, 80% of consumer spending power. This is from places like Harvard Business Review and also uh, the lesbian report meme I'm looking at right now. <laughs> and so also women 50 and older control 15 trillion of all spending on anything. And so, and yet, so I feel like also we are constantly in our business being like, aim younger, aim younger, like grab the newbies. And it's like, uh, we, we and up are here. And we would like to spend money. And they're just and we like, have money. We have money. have money. <laughs> we have the money. And so there's so many statistics about like, even though somehow you guys, women make less money, statistically across the board, we spend all the money. We take our household money. We are the people who choose. And I don't know what the men are doing, hoarding it, hoarding it for underground fight clubs in the future? What's what, Where's their money? <laughs> I don't know. I, also, I know that this is a weird statistic, but like, the less money you have, the more, per the higher percentage of it you spend. Because yeah. like, you know, if you only make enough money to like pay your rent and buy groceries, then a hundred percent of your money is going to rent and groceries. Whereas if you're super rich, a large percentage of your money is just going into savings or the stock market or, you know, whatever. So because women make less money, it actually weirdly makes sense that we spend more because you sort of have to. And to give my little context thing is that, uh, Trickle down economics, perhaps a phrase you've heard. This is where they, the government gives like banks or corporations, you know, help in the pandemic, or they bail out the banks, they bail out these big corporations, or they give rich people tax incentives. And they say, well, rich people have all the money. If they, if they get these breaks and they do well, it will trickle down to the bottom. And that's what keeps the economy good is giving these big tax breaks to corporations. But that is wrong. You may have heard me say this a lot, but we spent a lot of time on this, on the problem with Jon Stewart, truly doing the math from every angle to see like, is there any way trickle down economics works? It does not. And what the statistics that actually exist are that the economy is powered by the working class and the lowest class industries in, in America. So it is the working class people who power the economy because they are spending all the money and rich people are hoarding it and putting it in, like Ashley said, you know, these other markets or, or they're doing these other things, but they're not actually powering the economy. We are, <laughs> um, and the working class people are. And so, okay, that's my little context, but yes, keep going, Ashley. The other like version of that statistic that's crazy is when it comes specifically to entertainment spending, Latinos are number one and black people are number two in spending the most money on entertainment. And if you looked at the offerings of entertainment, you would not think that was the case. Like, why aren't there 15 
Latino led movies every year, given that we know they're the biggest audience for movies. Yes. And instead they like bring one out a decade um, and make judgments off of that versus judgments off of the numbers. I mean, I went to the highest grossing comedy list of, of movies of, and this is specifically comedies because women specifically are given almost nothing. And this is the space Ashley and I work in. So I'm heated. Okay. (laughs) On the highest grossing comedy list of all time, all comedies ever, you guys, this is how bad it is. Sex in the City movie is number 11 <laughs> of all comedies ever made because women have nothing, but Sex in the City is a big franchise. So it's up to number 11. Would I call this one of our best comedies? You know what? I wouldn't have even called it a comedy, to be honest. <laughs> I, was, here- I was like, oh, I guess I found out because I haven't seen it. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, Ashley. Do you know what's even crazier than that? Sex in the City 2 is number 34. <laughs> it's one of the worst movies ever fucking made, ever, ever. And because women have so little franchises we are given, where they've really built out the franchise over years to even pull people in, we've got such little things that when you give it, we, sh- we come, we arrive. Yep. Um, directors of movies, by gender, women accounted for 14 of all movie directors in the United States. Well, that's cool because women are 14.6% of people, right? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, people of color within those numbers were um, invisible (laughs) because the statistic is like (laughs) 0.01245%. And so even if you're thinking in your head like, oh, but I feel like I see more movies lately or like Bottoms or Joyride, it's like we're talking about blockbuster movies on a different scale that we are not given. And yes, we are getting more indies, thank God, because they're willing to take more risks. But in terms of blockbusters, not a lot. And so they could just look at like, hey, we should just make a bunch of this art because the five great things are going to make us rich, fucking rich. Why don't they want our money? Well, I don't, they all, everyone wants our money. Everyone wants our money. When it comes to lip gloss, they all want our money. There's a, there's 1 million lip gloss. There are as much <laughs> lip gloss brands as there are Spider-Man movies. Why won't they give women art? I think in large part, because like, if we're talking about blockbusters specifically in the past 10 years, the majority of them have been superhero movies and they're movies based on comic books that were popular when the people who are in charge of picking, which is like 40 to 60 year old white guys were 13. Everybody loves the shit that was popular when they were 13. For me, it's Mariah Carey. For these guys, it's Batman, Spider-Man, whatever. So they started making them. They did well. And then they made too many. Like, let's just be clear. There's too many of them. People started to get tired of them. But I think it's like this, but I like it. So the next one's going to work. The next one's going to work. Like they invested in something and they just keep reinvesting in it. And they never really invested in female-led comedies. Like they'll make them every now and then. And when they do well, it's like, oh, that was a fluke. But when a Marvel movie does well, it's not a fluke. It's let's make 15 more. Because they're personally invested in it and they're financially invested. And I think like the flash just came out and did horrifically like you just, and it, it's not an easy fail. It's like millions of dollars of a budget into a fail. And that won't affect 
that didn't affect the next action movie. And, and the Marvel movies that have flopped before did not affect their pipeline of Marvel movies or Marvel shows. The fact that it's oversaturated might, but like one bad one didn't. Whereas anything that is like female ensemble comedy and they're like, oh, well, it didn't make money. That will affect whether the next one gets made. Yes. Which and is like, not- I want to say they would never put flash money into a female-led comedy, but yeah. you also don't need to. They cost less to make. So even if you made one and it failed, you would lose a tenth of the money you would lose on a flash. Yeah. And they're not even willing to take that much lesser risk. But like, where, like, listen, we're artists. Where are the math people, the science people? <laughs> the, where's, where's the little business AI being like, boop, boop, beep, boop, numbers wise, seems like this. <laughs> you know, it, it's so, I can think of like dozens and dozens of male cop duo films and television shows. When it comes to women, I can think of two, The Heat and whatever that Gabrielle Union, Jessica Alba show was that they dumped in Canada. Um, which by the way, why did they do that? How many female cop shows can you think of where it's, it's a female, it's a female duo, funny or serious? None. Oh, there was one, Rizzoli and Isles. Oh yeah. Perfect and that example. show crushed. Because that show was huge. That show crushed. It was huge. And you never heard about it. They never got nominated for any awards or anything, but like it was on for a long time because people were watching it. But That's it's, so true. It's almost like those shows are like orphans. Like nobody wants to claim like, oh, that's our show, even though it's doing really well, because it's not what they want to be doing well. Yeah, which is interesting, too. It makes me think of two other shows, like, crushing it this summer um, and this year, the, the Summer I Turned Pretty and Jenny and Georgia, which, like, listen, personally, Jenny and Georgia is a little painful for old shells because, <laughs> well, the content is very different. Our, the log lines were very similar to a, a show that I had. And and when I was taking my show out, which is right before theirs actually came out, I was told in this show that was a comedy. So technically per page, we're talking three to five jokes. Whether you like them or not, they were there. I was told it was too sad to see a mom and a daughter uh, not have money. <laughs> and they were like, sad. <laughs> and the mom had bad ex-husbands. And they would say things like, can they not be bad guys? Can she just be like tired of them? Because it's too <laughs> sad. It's too sad that these guys were bad. And so, anyways, so the show doesn't go. Well, lo and behold, something goes on Netflix. It's the number one show on Netflix. It's the number show. one show on Netflix. Yeah, and it's like, hey, why, and I mean this both like, cause I'm petty, but also just again, science, science, science wise. Why has no one found me and been like, Hey, that Jenny and Georgia shit went, give us yours. Just put it, exactly. up, put it up. Because that's what happens with other shows. Like one FBI show does well. Then the next season there's five FBI yes. shows. Yes. Abbott elementary did really well, um, last year. So then the next year, Every single exec you met with was like, we're looking for our Abbott Elementary, right? That's right. But then when you look at the shows they picked up, which haven't come out because of the strike, um, as we say, they take the wrong lessons. They're all like workplace comedies, which technically Abbott is. But part of the reason Abbott worked so well was because it was about working class people. And it's a majority black working class yes, people. It's also majority black women cast. <laughs> yes. And all the shows that got picked up that are the quote unquote next Abbott Elementary are workplace comedies about like middle class workplaces, not working class and not featuring black women um, in the major role. And and even more specific to that, even if a studio was like, all right, OK, here we go. 
working class, <laughs> black, <laughs> mostly women. Let's do it. That's also not how you get good art. Find a good artist, Ashley, honestly, <laughs> and, and, and say like, what are the shows that really mean a lot to you? regardless of if it's a fucking workplace, you know what I mean? And get it on there versus now we're following stats. Well, X amount of men makes a good cast. Well, if so-and-so in Wisconsin likes them, we pick it up. But like the truth is that Abbott is just good. It's good. And you can't, well, maybe AI can soon, but not yet. It (laughs) It can't just recreate a good show. Like that's the thing that will be left out in it where it's like, we'll go rip it off versus like, make the art but you know what fuck it listen at least start in the place of like black working class yeah well and i will say like part of the reason it's good is because it is funny but it has that heart that doesn't necessarily have to be there but it's there because quinta's mom was a teacher and so she knows real stories you know from that environment and she has a real heart for those teachers and i feel like that's the part that they always the algorithm is not going to pull that part out of it and be like, that's part of the success. Yeah. Or they will be like, this has to have heart. So when do they apologize to each other? This has to have heart. (laughs) Um, What's something, have someone give a sad speech. Okay. So (laughs) let's move into the Taylor and Beyonce of it all. So the federal reserve came out and said, Taylor saved the economy. The Barbie movie. I know we moved past movies, but the Barbie movie literally brought back movie theaters, which is something they mm-hmm. thought were going to go away. And people went to the movies. And yet it's, they still say Barbenheimer did it when Barbie is in the billions and Oppenheimer is in the millions, but okay, whatever. Uh, and then Beyonce seems to be getting left out of this, these headlines. Do you think that's just like general racism or the fact that like her awe inspiring headlines have come before and Taylor hasn't, I don't know. What do you think? I think it is a combination of general racism and also Taylor has made more money. The style of music that Taylor does is always just going to be a little bit more mainstream than the style that Beyonce does. They're both incredible artists, but Taylor's music, it's like, it's pure pop. It's easy to sing along to. She's talking about topics that are the mainstream topics like coming of age, dating, all of that stuff. Beyonce's work, it's talking about topics that are a little bit less mainstream. And she's still a very mainstream artist, but it's not just pop. She's incorporating R&B. She's incorporating house music. She's incorporating things that are more fringe. So there's the mainstream is always going to be more mainstream. Like, yeah, I think it's like a positive quality. You're saying that like brings people into like Taylor's stuff. Yeah. And that like a positive thing is that we have both of them. Like, it's so weird to me. People are like, who's better, this artist or this artist? Who cares? They both exist and we get to listen to both of their music. Like, why would that ever be a negative or a competition? Like, we we have two women at the top of their game absolutely fucking killing it at the same time. Which, P.S., the thing that we never talk about, like, they both made so much money that, like, we should be talking more about how much money women can make if you give them the opportunity But we're not talking about the fact that they both did that at the same time. And it didn't split the dollar. Like women were so willing to pay money to finally get the entertainment that we want. That there are people like myself who bought the pink outfit and the ticket to Barbie, bought the um, Taylor uh, friendship bracelets and the ticket to Taylor's concert, bought the silver outfit and the ticket to Beyonce's concert. 
And the economy is trash right now, but it just goes to show that when people are hungry for entertainment, they will spend money when you offer it to them. And it's not like people were like, oh, I already paid for Taylor. I'm not paying for Beyonce. No, they did both. Yeah, yeah. And even the people who didn't do both, there's so much of our money, 80%, okay? Okay, we're going to take a quick break right now, and we'll be right back. Sibling fights are unavoidable. But what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Dis and Tell, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Dis and Tell on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life. And I can't believe it, but I got to write my own. And it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. The book, you know, I was asked to describe it, and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing, traumatic memoir, but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup. How I got my break into Hollywood. When I found out my dad was not my real dad. The time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah. Growing up around cults. How I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes. Some are motherfucking villains. But you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role. And we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book. It matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes, but you know, go anywhere. Also, I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre-sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much. Okay, welcome back. Let's continue the conversation. And like, we can just split in half and you'll make billions of dollars. And it is like something you said, Ashley, which is that uh, Taylor Swift writes about coming of age, um, romance stories, making mistakes. These are things that all human beings are hungry for. And and you have said this to me. Every single Spider-Man movie is a coming of age story. It's a human story. We want those stories and we want those romances. And women don't have a lot of art for that. So when Taylor Swift comes in and starts making all these songs about things we would watch movies about, we don't have a lot of movies about them. She's truly filling a gap in the market. And this is the thing I think about all the time. Sex and the City blew up, blew up. It was like women in their late 30s, 40s dating. And every woman, no matter what age, watched it. They watched it so much that, and just like that is here. And even though everyone hates it, guess what? 
Everyone's watching it because there's nothing. And after Sex in the City, instead of a million female ensemble dating shows, like five years, six years later, we got girls, which again, like feel what you want about girls, but like that shit blew up. It was supposed to be a small little HBO show and it blew up because again, we're just hungry for it. So are they four rich white ladies in Brooklyn? Like we're in, <laughs> whatever. Then years and years pass until we get Harlem, <laughs> Run the World, Dollface, and like those shows, there should be 19 of them so that when they go well or go poorly, it doesn't really matter because you're looking for your sex in the city. And instead they took years and did whatever they did to them. And then they just move on and re-up sex in the city again. So what you're saying about Taylor Swift is that television market gap. It's a gap in the television market. And they're like, well, fuck it. Taylor's singing about it. She'll give us the stories we're looking for, which is such a smart point. And I will say like in between that time frame that you're referencing, the, the Mindy Project is in there. Yeah. Which is, it's not an, as much of an ensemble show, but it is, you know, dating in the city and whatever. And again, was on for a very long time, very popular show. Did we hear about it? Were there articles about it? Were there awards? It's just sort of like, oh, that's over there. That's. Yeah. And she, and she was canceled, picked up by Hulu, like went again. And, and, uh, same with, uh, new girl, new girl would be in that mm-hmm. category. Yes. And what's, what's the number, what's one of the number one watch shows in pandemic new girl. Yeah. People just want and they want a good show. Yeah. New Girl and Suits and Friends are like the biggest shows on Netflix. And it's very interesting that Netflix doesn't choose to make ensemble comedies. <laughs> They're like, you have all the information in the world about what people are watching down to the second they turn yeah. it off. Yeah. And yet you don't choose to use that information to make more of what people like. And I also think it's because of that process we were talking about where if your specific cultural reference points, you cannot recognize them in another script, you will then give notes like that's not real or the data I saw said or on my daughter's TikTok, she says, you know, because you can't like read the script and then then all those notes and things trickle down to make, you know, a garbled sex in the city (laughs) knockoff. Um, as opposed to what, I don't know, whatever got it through in the first place. It was a very bad pilot. Do you remember the Sex and the City <laughs> pilot? Um, no, I actually didn't watch it at the time. As you know, I did not watch yeah. television at the time. Um, so I had never seen it. And so it's been really interesting watching the discourse. To me, like, and just like that lives in the same space as like Housewives, as this language that every woman except for me speaks but I do think they do live in, live in a similar, similar space of like people are so hungry for content that they like the way people talk about them becomes like a monoculture because there aren't 15 different shows for women to be talking about. There's like that one. That's so when that so show true. is on the air, it's all anyone is talking about. Also, we have seen presentations come out where they say women like reality TV, men like prestige real television. Okay. This is true. You guys, it's been leaked. However, the study that I want is like, yeah, of course we like reality TV. I love reality TV. On what network could I find seven to 12 different franchises of six to eight groups of women who all look similar, but have wildly different personalities and they all hang out. And they're all over reality TV. They're all over 40. But like I could I could never pitch a show where I was like, hey, um, it's a show about six 45 year old women 
in um, Orange County and they're all blonde and they all love yoga pants and Fendi. They would just be like, oh, that would never fucking get made. But guess what? Women, like all our nuances are within those characters and we can only get them passed on reality TV. They're mean to each other. The number of times I've gotten notes where it's like, I don't understand. Like, she's mean. Why is she being mean? Why does she talk to her friends like that? And it's like, because that's how people are. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Yes. And there's this whole thing about being likable. And I think they make female characters likable as in nice. So what would make them likable is that they're nice. But it's like, guess what? My favorite housewives are fucking wild. What makes a woman likable is not if she like did a good deed. It's that she can like rip a bitch to to pieces with a little turn of phrase. It's that she wears her outfit and has a husband who's a chef that she's making be her manager, even though he has no skills. Like that's funny. That's likable. I feel like the likable thing won't work. Likable. And I, I think there's a real overuse of the term relatable because like science of the lambs wasn't relatable, but I enjoyed it. But I do think that what makes a character likable is that there's something relatable about them. And that only comes from like specificity and realness, you know? So like, I always think of, there's a moment in house of cards where this reporter is in this like gorgeous dress. She's beautiful. She's so well put together. She fucking nails this guy with facts because she's a great reporter and you know, she's great. And then they show her going home and her house is a mess. No, she lives in a tiny apartment. It's a complete mess. That amazing dress is the only dress she owns. She hangs it up on a um, on a rack by itself. And then she pours red wine into a dirty mug and drinks it. And that was so 100% me when I was in grad school. And I was like and teaching me right students. Now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, like, yes, yes. Oh, We've I'm all grown. Professor. I'm the smartest person in the world. And I'm going home to a biohazard of an apartment and drinking wine, cheap wine out of a dirty mug. Like, is that likable? No, but it's real and it's relatable. And women are instantly going to be like leaning into that character. But as we know, those things get noted out. Like I had pitched a show that had a murder in it. The main character is investigating a murder and was literally getting notes back that were like, does it have to be so dark? Does she have to be so mean? It was like, she's the killer. <laughs> like, <laughs> How are we going to make a murder mystery if even the killer's not allowed to be mean to people? (laughs) (laughs) It is. I I remember that. And it makes me laugh every time. (laughs) And and bringing it back to Taylor, relatable, likable. And and what I love about Taylor's likability is that there's, and listen, you guys, I'm not Swifty, so I'm not going to get this right. But like, there's a song she wrote that's like about calling Camilla Bella, like, a dirty slut. Uh, and she wrote it when she was 19, but her fandom will say like, she was 19. Like she didn't know better or, but whatever. It doesn't even really matter because that's part of what makes her relatable, making mistakes, <laughs> saying yeah. the wrong thing, like not being perfectly feminist or empowering. And I think same with Beyonce. Um, and just to call out the numbers, Taylor's tour made currently is at 4.6 billion dollars and Beyonce is at 2.1 billion dollars. I mean, nothing, I mean, nothing to look down upon. You know who else is touring this summer? The Jonas Brothers, Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) Which I only found out about the Jonas Brothers because I guess one of them's getting divorced. I didn't know they were on tour. Whereas you can't like turn your head without hearing about the Taylor or Beyonce tour. 
I feel like Taylor also like has songs where she's specifically like, I'm a bad person. I did this. And so she's not pretending to be this like perfect, nice, you know, most likable person. She's like, honestly saying in, in music, I fucked up. I did this. I shouldn't have did this. I feel like people think this about me. And again, we've all had those moments in life. So it's relatable. We're not like, Oh, it turns out she's bad. We're like, yeah, I'm bad too. Yeah. (laughs) And also, I mean, so much shit has been talked about Taylor and will always be from her love life to whatever. And it's like, and that's the experience of being a woman getting fucking shit said about you all the time, you know? And like, like she came to your town, did a concert and literally improved the economy. What are we upset about? Like, yeah. Oh yeah. And it's do like, it. I, or even just like the Matt Healy of it all, you know, it's like, how could she date him and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, and, and but what I'm saying is that like, that's good. Like that's good art. I know it's her real life, but because we have such little art now it's our art. You know what I mean? Now that's my dating show of like, oh no, she's dating the, a fucked up guy again. And same with Beyonce. It's like the whole cheating thing. When she wanted to do lemonade and swing a baseball bat around, that's all we sang and talked about for years. Anything she wants to tell us, like we want and we're here for it. You're right about the difference between these two markets. And also Taylor hasn't toured in a long time. I think that's also the financial difference. But the third thing I think we're looking at, which is something you told me, is how different the tour energy felt, really, with both of them. Like, Taylor's concert is mostly women, and I think Beyonce is as well, but Beyonce has more of a queer audience as well. Yeah, and I don't even know. I mean, I'm sure it is mostly women, but from being there, like, at Taylor, it was truly, like, it's so mostly women that when you saw a man, it was kind of like, oh, you're here. Like, it, it's so yeah. almost all women. Beyonce just felt like, regular life like Hmm. i'm sure it's less than 50 percent men but it was a high percentage of men very queer um and but both were like very amazing vibes that are so obviously curated by the artist what was really interesting was like taylor and i think because she hasn't toured in a long time and it's the eras tour her performance was very much like i'm here and i'm performing for you I'm happy you're here. I acknowledge, both artists acknowledge, I acknowledge that you spent a lot of money to be here. You picked your outfit and you look amazing. You know the lyrics to my song. That's so kind. That's so amazing. Like they're both really good about acknowledging the work that it takes to attend these expensive concerts. Um, And so all of Taylor's show is like, I'm so happy you're here. This is for you. Pointing at the audience, weekend at the audience. Like we are in this room together and it's for you. And like Beyonce's show really starts there. And early on, she sings Flaws and All, which is like a song about a lover. Like, you love me, even though I have these flaws. But she's singing it to the audience. Like, you love me. You are the reason why I'm able to achieve this. Since 1997, you guys have been with me. She said specifically. And she also said, like, I'm glad that I could create this safe space for you. Because again, it's a very queer show. And it's a space where people can come you know, dressed however they want to dress and whatever, and just like be in a safe environment and sing and dance for a couple of hours. So she starts the show the same way Taylor starts it in that vibe. But then she keeps going. And by the end of the show, Beyonce's like floating above the crowd and everyone's worshiping her. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. it's like very interesting what is similar, which is I think women want to be seen and acknowledged, which both women are very much doing, but then with them being artists, they're very different and it veers off from there. 
but yeah. the acknowledgement of like, I see you, I recognize that you've been to multiple shows. I recognize that you put on an amazing outfit, that you um, flew to be here, or that you spent a large portion of your entertainment budget for the year to be here. I see you, you are important. Yeah. Because I feel like the Barbie movie did that too. Like having the um, weird Barbie character and so many women being like, oh my God, I had one Barbie that I fucked up so I could let the other Barbies yeah, look Which normal. is like, yeah, a way of saying I see you I is see you. just putting something in your art that is so specific that we go, oh my God, I know that. You know what I mean? Like weird Barbie feels like I see you. It's like acknowledging your here like your personhood like, your details yeah yes this is not like some high off piece of art that you're supposed to just gaze at i acknowledge that you're watching it and reflect something about you back to yourself as big as i know how much these tickets cost or yeah. as small as i know you used to color on your doll when you were a kid and i think we get so little of that that we really revere the artists who give it to us as yeah. women because yeah. men get it all the time. I know you like Ninja Turtles. I know you like Spider-Man. I know you like Batman. It's a constant reification of what's important to them that we don't get as often. I think that's so true. And I think also in the creation of art, when it's not led by the people who can be specific and truthful, that's when we get a lot of the art that is quote unquote made for women or made for quote unquote diverse audiences. And I say this is like, like, I, I like Batman. I, I, I like almost all the movies. I'm a fan. But the way they make female art would be is if you let me make a Batman movie, where I would be saying, Batman, <laughs> <laughs> like, he's got a cape. I know there's a weird <laughs> voice. Yeah. His parents are dead. Um, well, and I feel like, like that's what they go. They like, oh, they like feminism, pink sparkles. <laughs> I remember... I had a show that had a, a mother-daughter relationship that was really mirrored on mine. And I remember getting the note of like, well, my mom wasn't like that. I was like, okay. <laughs> like, Dude. I can promise you every Black woman, their mom was like this. They will relate to this. It's so wild how many like layers go into this. And also I will say like, you know, it's been a very gendered episode, but kind of as always, I really mean it as like feminine and masculine energy in the sense of like, even in your crowd makeup or whatever, but it's like Beyonce is at least a good part of her work is speaking to feminine energy and speaking to women and thinking yeah. about women and what she's making. Let's talk like, you know, feminism goes up in lights, what, six years ago behind her as she's performing formation, like she's sampling the, the feminism speech from Chimamanda, like she's thinking about women in her work. And I think when we are asked to make work for women, people are always saying like, but what about men or what about yes. white men or, and it's like, but when we make work by white men, they're never saying, but what about women? Yes. Like in Beyonce's concert, there's a whole section that is like a ball. So she's introducing queer culture and specifically black queer culture that is so specific to this mainstream audience. And guess what? It's fucking hot people dancing. If you don't know what it is, you're just going to enjoy it. And that's yeah. fine. But I feel like when we do stuff like in scripts or whatever, it's always like, well, then you have to explain this to men or to white people. And it's like, I really don't think you do. I think that if you see hot people telling jokes and there's one joke you don't understand, it's still hot people telling jokes. 
you're yeah. going to sit there and enjoy it. It's and fine. also it's going to move culture forward. You're going to go, yeah. what was that joke? And then someone will tell you, and then it'll be the, the thing, you know what I mean? Because we want just something original every now and then. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh. I, per- can I say an example? Yes. Like perfect yes. example. So, um, I wrote on Ted Lasso, obviously I'm not an athlete, but <laughs> both my brothers are, and I grew up, you know, seeing their experiences being members of teams and stuff like that. And so one thing that was always true is like, there's always a guy on the team who cuts everybody else's hair. Or like in my family, it was like one uncle who cut everybody's hair. You would go over to your <laughs> uncle's house and like get your hair cut. So I had pitched on Ted Lasso that Isaac, um, who's the captain of the team, cuts hair. And then they put in an episode where Sam's going on a date. And so Isaac is going to give him his like special haircut because he's great at cutting hair. And I saw on Twitter people being like, I liked the episode, but it's so unrealistic that this like international soccer star is also great at cutting hair. And then black people answering and being like, no, because a lot of times there aren't people who can do our hair in the different locations. So if you have a job where you're traveling, you need someone who can cut your hair at different locations because there may not be a black barbershop there or whatever. And I watched this conversation happen and people learn something new that they didn't know. Like, obviously the purpose of the show is not to teach people things. The show was funny. Him cutting the hair was very funny, but someone learned something about a culture they didn't know about because it was specific and it was put in there. And we did not explain it in the episode. We didn't go, well, in black culture, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, you just saw a black guy cut another black guy's hair. It's a funny scene. Both of these guys are very hot. You enjoyed it. And if you happen to go on Twitter or Reddit, someone would explain to you that that's Which a thing. Also, like, is the viewing experience now. And I, I, you know, I don't have the data on this, but I'm pretty sure I do when I open up TikTok. You love watching a thing and then talking about the thing. And yes. guess what? If the thing is boring or basic, you've seen it before, not a lot to talk about. You know, like, Queer Love Ultimatum blowing up on TikTok. This most recent scene of Ultimatum with straight people where they all, the ultimatum works on everyone. I haven't seen a fucking thing about it. <laughs> it's my favorite Sarah Rule quote. Interesting is more interesting than non-interesting. And like, let us be interesting, like in all the ways that maybe you don't see fitting into the world. To that point, I will also take it back to Taylor and say right now, Elton John, his multi-year farewell tour holds the current record of making $939 million. And basically, Taylor has... <laughs> gone far past that and four she's times not past even that. halfway done like she's there's so the many more dates left on the tour yeah i'm gonna ask you the question to ask you but i know what you're gonna say do you <laughs> do you think this summer of barbie beyonce taylor the summer I turned pretty will change how artistic decisions are made one when the strike ends and two in the music world which can make these decisions honestly right now And I know the answer, but do it anyway. (laughs) It is hard to say because we're in a strike. So I do wonder if we weren't on strike when Barbie came out, if we all would have been called into 100 meetings. Do you have any movie ideas? We don't know because there was a strike. Um, Taylor and Beyonce thing is interesting because obviously both of them have been on top for a long time. And they came out of an era in music that sort of doesn't, exist anymore like both of them are sort of like self-made artists where they were like from whatever town you know like beyonce's from houston she's not from la or new york or nashville taylor wasn't from nashville she moved there and they had parents who like 
got them lessons and studio times and all that stuff and sort of built them up as an artist and then they got deals but already sort of built up as an artist like taylor i think had had her first hit song maybe before she signed the record deal i don't know but she had been writing music and doing stuff as had beyonce before getting the deal so they came sort of already the close to the kind of artist they wanted to be even though obviously they were teenagers and they've evolved a lot but they had done their artist development themselves and then were sort of picked up by the bigger machine and now i feel like that machine is sort of like picking up people from TikTok like very early and it's more the machine trying to shape artists and so I don't know if that version of the machine could create a Taylor or a Beyonce um, even if they wanted to. Like even if they went out right now and were like, we're going to find 45 girls. Are they finding the Taylor or Beyonce style girl? I think that's well said. And I think the answer I was suspecting was like, will it change anything? The answer I was suspecting is no, specifically because, and obviously I want it to change more than anything, but- Ashley, is, you're the one who sent me this article where Taylor filmed her tour. Oh, my the, God. The number one tour, you guys. The number one tour of all the tours of the tours. And she reportedly went to studios and was like, would you like to buy this tour and put it in movies? And they said no. Or whatever money they were offering was not anywhere They're near what it was her. worth. Yeah. So she just went straight to the theaters and distributed it herself. And now AMC theaters are going to be showing the Taylor Swift concert and it's already going so well that other movies have had to move their movies out of theaters. And this is all to say like you had this thing in your face as a proven moneymaker and still, and still it wasn't enough. And it's Taylor Swift. Like, you know, we're out there striking. So people are talking a lot more about wages and working conditions than we have in the past. And I think it's really important. But I think in the past, there was always this like stereotype that like, oh, if you're not getting the big bucks, you're just like not good at this. What better way to show that that's not the case than Taylor fucking Swift saying, do you want free money, right? Because all they're doing is filming the concert. You don't have to do marketing for Taylor Swift. She's going to say it on Instagram and a bajillion people are going to buy a ticket the next day, which P.S. the AMC website crashed the first day that you can pre-buy tickets it's because like you guys, of how many people were buying them. And it famously, famously, Ticketmaster now taken to Congress because they didn't have, they couldn't sell tickets for Taylor. So this is something that people wanted tickets to and we have, it's, it, it's at the White House because people couldn't get tickets and now you have a way to give them tickets. She offered them free money. She is the biggest star in the world right now. And they still tried to undercut her. So what do you think is happening to your average work-a-day actor, writer, director who's just like trying to get a movie made? Obviously, everybody's getting undercut. So apparently, this is reportedly, obviously we weren't there, but according to reporters, when they found out that the movie was going to be released in theaters sort of without their blessing, they were mad. They're mad at Taylor. As opposed to, why aren't you mad at the executive who met with her team and didn't buy the movie? You could have had it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's where I, like, hope 
you know, we're in a labor strike and that is where we have like so many like wages and deal points and stuff to deal with. But I also hope like people are thinking about art and what makes it actually good because when it comes to literally anyone who is not a heterosexual white man, they seem to not know, even though they could know. And even if you don't know, since it's been proven that it's more profitable, why wouldn't you? Yeah, you know, it's totally even if you take the risk. Yeah. If and and something like Taylor Swift is not even a, a risk. So even if you're like, I don't get it, I don't get why Taylor's so popular, you know that she is. So make the money. Yeah, and why I, don't they want the money? I think the best thing to come out of this era with the strike and this Taylor story and all the stories that are coming out is admitting that it's not about money because these decisions get made and people just automatically assume they're financial decisions. You hear a show got canceled and people automatically go, well, I guess a lot of people weren't watching it or whatever. And that's not always the case. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Some of these shows are very popular and they are very financially successful and they are making these decisions for a reason other than money. And I don't know what it is, but I don't think we'll be able to properly address it until we acknowledge that they are not making every decision based on finances. Because if it was based on finances, they would have gone to Taylor and been like, hey, you want to make a movie? Yeah. Ashley, thank you so much for yelling about art with me. I feel like this is... This is just one of our conversations that we could have just had. We could have just had. And instead, I'm going to be like, hey, did you guys want this too? (laughs) This is what it's like talking to us. Hope you liked it. Um, But I do think everyone is talking about it. And I I really do hope like in the moment where we're not allowed to make art, people are thinking about like how we're going to do it when we finally are allowed to. Yeah. And I think like, obviously most of the people listening to this podcast are probably more a consumer of art than a maker of it. I think also like, let's be loud and honest about what we want. And don't just assume that because something got canceled or didn't get made that like, oh, I guess it was bad. Or maybe there's no one trying to do this. Maybe nobody likes a thing that I like. It has been proven that that's not the case. So we need to be loud, vote with our dollars. Like, And we have all the dollars. We have 80% of the dollars. Like if we really moved it as a whole, like we would be making all the decisions. Yeah. And stop accepting, you know, if we're 50% of the population, then give me 50% of the entertainment. Like let's stop accepting that we're going to get 15 or 20%. Yeah. And, and I'm, I don't, I don't know. I'm like, and go after this person, but it's like, (laughs) go after the decision makers. I feel like so often it's like, Oh, well, let's talk to Mindy Kaling. No, she's doing her best. She's making all the art she can. Talk to the other people. (laughs) Even if you don't like her art, it doesn't matter. She's busy. (laughs) Talk to someone else. This is like not even on topic, but my biggest pet peeve is when people are like, "Um, I hate writers because all the movies are exactly the same. They just keep writing the same story over and over again. I promise you that it is not writers making those choices. They keep buying the same movies over and over again. Yell at them. Every writer has a suitcase full of weird bullshit. They wish they could get someone to buy and make. That is so true. That is so true. Speaking of, where can people find your weird bullshit online? What's your (laughs) handle? Where can people support you, find you, follow you? Yeah, I mean, obviously we're not working right now, so there's nothing to plug. Um, My Instagram is 
um, Ash and B1 if you want to hang out, see some pictures of dogs and girls on vacation. I'm in some of those pics. We look great. Go find them. Um, Ashley, thank you so much. Love you so much. You guys, bye. (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, hmm, depressing, but also inspired. I don't have a hopeful note for you. all for this week's episode. If you love this podcast, if you want more of this podcast, go join us on Patreon. If you become a Patreon member, you get one bonus episode every month. You get an email every episode of photos that go with the episode. You get a newsletter of all the best DMs that I get that month where we like learn and recap things. You also get access to our lounge, which is a cookies only chat lounge where we chat about episodes and all kinds of things. There's also other tiers. So you can join for just a dollar a month or $5 a month. And then for higher level tiers, we do a live book club on Zoom once a month where we listen to the episode of the podcast and discuss that episode. So no reading required. That's patreon.com slash Chelsea DeMontes. And that is where we love your support. And that's also where the community is. A huge thank you to our producer, Kate Downey, our episode engineer, DJ Batten. No, that's right. It's Marcus Hom, formerly known as DJ Bouncy House, assistant Jaron Padre, and our executive producer, Jordan Mancata. Our team does so much to make this podcast happen, and I just thank them endlessly. Also, a big thank you to our product partners at Tenteo, Natalie's Juice, and Pattern Brands. They have given us and our guests so many great products. We are going to link each brand in the show notes, and you can find all of the products that I love on my Instagram highlights, where I am always on Instagram at Chelsea Devantes. And I'll see you there or for another episode soon.